gentlemen and corner kick fam welcome back to another edition of the corner kick podcast my name is nathan strauss as always joined by a man who did not fail to score against a relegation threatened fulham side in nick gavinden hello i'm a very sad lonely soul in nick gavinden today and i'm also joined by a man who did not just cast his vote for club president for the first time in caleb rhodes that is correct. Although I, I'm looking to try to scheme to become a socio. I think I can do it. Like, that's like a life goal. I'm not going to lie. I think if, Boyan, I think if Boyan is still able to vote in the election, I think you should be able to to find a way. Boyan, to... author at Diario Sports, as we discovered. He is a journalist now, as well as a soccer player. A man of many talents, but also very few pa- few talents at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, I know we're just kind of jumping the gun here a little bit. I, it was interesting like watching all these images trickle out of like everyone of like Barca's past coming in to vote. It was sort of like the, the Barcelona version of like the portal sequence in Avengers Endgame where it's like Luis Enrique is coming out of one portal. Uh, Boyan is coming out of the other portal. <laughs> like all of these guys from like Barcelona's past and present and potentially future like coming out it's more like um it's more like ang finally being able to access the avatar state in the finale where like you know he hasn't been able to do it all season and then all of a sudden he like stabs his back and then all of the different eyes like illuminate no, in a yeah, row yeah, yeah it was just like that <laughs> moment where it's like the club needs help like look at all of these figures anyways we've got a lot to talk about we'll get to the barcelona elections a little bit later on but first it was a pretty important derby weekend some of the biggest derbies in world soccer Um, happening across Spain, Germany, and England. Why don't we start with England, just because it was perhaps the most surprising result of all three games. Manchester City entered this game on just an absurd winning streak. They've practically locked up another Premier League title, as we've discussed in the past, and yet Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's squad somehow managed to end that streak, defying expectations once again. Guys, what did we make of this result? And Is there more to this than just a fluke uh, victory for the Devils? Okay, so Nick Nick and I watched this game together. We kind of had this discussion. This is, this doesn't matter at all. This is like the least consequential result in a game of football, perhaps ever. Okay, Manchester City have not been especially good against Manchester United over the last two years or so under Guardiola. Last time out, right, it was, or maybe last year it was, that crazy Ederson throw and then McTominay just shooting it in from distance. Like for whatever reason, Man City are a little tripped up against Man U. But if you look at the scope of the season, this is irrelevant in the title race. The only way this game matters at all is maybe it puts a little dent in the argument that Manchester City have are our favorites over Bayern Munich for the Champions League. But in terms of like the Premier League, I think this is like immaterial it doesn't really matter at all i think it matters in the sense that um it kind of breaks the the mystique of this current city team a little bit because i don't think manchester united if you if you compared their first 11s i think you could say like united didn't have cavani martial was starting up top martial has not had a particularly great season uh bruno fernandez was coming into this game you know looking a little bit exhausted in his past three outings it's relevant because if you united what you have to do this season 
is just be better than everyone else. And like that is improvement. Like finishing second for them would be a massive improvement on their past couple of seasons, especially under Ole. And I think this was a statement, a statement victory for them. And that I think our criticism of United has been like certain players step up in key moments, but there's never been like a key, a, a team performance that has defined them this season. I think this was their team performance that's going to define their season. I thought they played extremely well off the ball. I think we have to have a discussion about the resurgence of Luke Shaw, for my money, being the best left back in the Premier League this season in his goal. Definitely was a capstone on that statement. The criticism of United this season has been like their defense isn't good enough to win titles. Their defense played extremely well today. Lindelof and Maguire. Lindelof and Maguire didn't put a foot wrong. They weren't pulled out by Manchester City's attack. And I think if you're City, like what you need to beat City is a really organized team defense. You need to press them from the front. And you also need to ride your luck. And all those three things worked out in United's favor. And I think if you're City, they haven't been especially potent in front of goal this season. And I think this was just an instance of where they couldn't quite find that final pass. And maybe that will be a worry to them. You know, like Caleb was saying, once they get to the latter stage of the Champions League, time will tell. Yeah, I mean, I kind of thought, I think along with a lot of other fans, that um, that when Alex Tellis was brought in, he was going to be their answer at left back. But maybe all Luke Shaw needed was some some serious competition from someone you know a little bit more established than a guy like Brendan Williams to kind of spur him back into form we know he's had really really bad injury luck I remember that really bad tackle from maybe Hector Moreno of PSV in the Champions League a few years ago that really set him back even though I think I kind of dislike a lot of players on United just because of their body language and the fact they play for United and embody a lot of arrogance a lot of the time uh, Luke Shaw has genuinely seemed like a, a pretty good guy um, and someone who's been hard done by in the past. And he's kind of finally had his quote-unquote breakout year, what now, eight years after he he was signed from, from Southampton? What year was he signed? Twenty seven years, I think. Seven years? Okay, so yeah. I mean, I, I mean, and he's honestly probably played himself into the starting left-back role um, for England at the Euros as well, which I don't think a lot of people would have expected. So good on him, I suppose. And he was also man of the match the first time uh, these two teams played. So... Certainly positives if you are a United fan, but moving on to Germany, I was pretty surprised. I sort of, I knew this game was happening. It was on ABC. So it was the first nationally televised Bundesliga game in the, in, in America. Derek Ray was on commentary and I was a little surprised to see Dortmund go up 2-0 within the first 20 minutes. Erling Holland was doing Erling Holland things, but then it just seemed like Bayern decided to spot them two goals for fun as the last 70 minutes were as clinical a performance as you could get for Bayern, who just dramatically outplayed Dortmund and took back the lead in the Bundesliga. Leipzig had won in the morning to take a temporary hold on first place. But again, this match just shows how far Dortmund have fallen as of late and just what a force Bayern are when they get firing on all cylinders. Yeah, the first thing I'll say is that this game like never disappoints, right? This game always is filled with goals. There's always several lead changes. So I think, you know, coming into this one, I was like, all right, this is going to be a really great game for a Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon time spot for ABC. And it was. I think this was a great advertisement for the Bundesliga. Uh, if you're ESPN, if you're Disney and you want to market the Bundesliga uh, in that sort of Premier League time slot, I think this did a really good job of doing that. Um, Erling Holland continues to be 
soccer's version of the Terminator. I think we all know that to be the case. However, they're really going to need to supply him with a good enough defense and midfield behind him in the next coming seasons if they're really going to be serious about keeping him until, you know, that release clause activates in 2022. I'm just really concerned for the future of Borussia Dortmund. They really folded here. This was a classic example of scoring too early and then being a little bit frazzled and chaotic at the back and not knowing how to deal with Bayern. Because we know Bayern, like when they go down one or two nil, they don't get flustered. It's business as usual for them. They continue with their game plan and they just know that the goals are coming and the goals did come. And so Borussia Dortmund now seventh in the Bundesliga. We know that if they don't finish in the top four, there's going to be some serious financial ramifications for their club. The, maybe this is going to be the summer where we see Sancho leave. We see Reyna leave. Obviously, we know that Marco Rosa is coming in from Borussia Mönchengladbach. And I don't know what sort of ship he's going to be inheriting. What this game showed is you can't just roll up to Bayern Munich and expect a bunch of 17 to 21-year-olds to beat Bayern Munich. Over the past few years, I think every single time we're like, oh no, this is the Dortmund team that's finally going to like beat Bayern. Bayern have been on some bad form recently. Dortmund can do it. And every time we get this horrible like bait and switch where for like a moment it seems like it's going to happen and then Bayern just roll them over. And honestly, there was that this week because Dortmund beat Mönchengladbach 3-0 in the DFB Pokal. And then everyone, even I was like, okay, cool. They won that game 3-0. They're going to roll into Bayern and get just stomped because that's how it works. Like, that's how it works. There is just sort of a, a, a power structure to this rivalry and it swings so heavily in, in the favor of the bigger brother in Bayern Munich. Yeah, but I think this year what we're seeing is that Dortmund's, as you said, midfield and defense just is so bad. Like they have so little quality at center back outside of Mats Hummels, who's kind of passed it. And I think the loss of Hakimi has decimated their ability um, to play with, you know, the wing backs. They have nine losses in the Bundesliga right now. You know who has, you know who has fewer losses than them this season? I'll give you a list. Union Berlin, SC Freiburg, VfB Stuttgart, Mönchengladbach, and Werder Bremen. That's like half the league has lost fewer games than Borussia Dortmund. And I think, as you said, if they don't finish in not even a Champions League place right now, a European place, then all of their 17-year-olds that are good are going to leave. Like next year, it could very legitimately be like Yusuf Makoko is their starting striker. And he's, I don't know, this is really bad. This is really bad. And I think the scoring kind of distracts from the fact that their defense is so terrible because Bayern's defense has been equally bad to them this year, except while Dortmund are the second best attacking team in the league with 50 goals, Bayern are the first with 71 goals scored. So we knew this was going to be a shootout from the beginning. And the question is, whose defense is way worse? And I think we have an answer. Yeah, there's kind of a problem that you hinted at, which is that Dortmund is kind of comprised at this moment of good formerly world-class players like Axel Witzel or Matt Hummels or even Berkey, who I wouldn't say and who I wouldn't say is necessarily world-class, but was very good. And then up-and-coming youth players who will end up getting sold for a profit. Um, but there isn't really that middle ground. 
you know, Emre Chan, I think, is one of the few players who is in that middle ground. Maybe a guy like Thomas Delaney. Even then, Thomas Delaney is, is about to be 30. Right. And those guys aren't good enough to sort of sustain a team like like Dortmund when they lose a guy like Holland, who, as we've seen in this game, as we've seen um, in the Champions League, is just an absurd talent um, and, and will likely go on to be one of the greatest goal scorers of our generation. But yeah, Dortmund could be in real trouble. And we do have a bit of a title race going on. And, you know, we'll talk about for a little bit about Leipzig versus Liverpool later on. But if Leipzig don't manage to overcome that two goal deficit we could see a leipzig side that's out of europe um and certainly in form trying to dethrone Bayern for the first time ever so that could be very very interesting to keep an eye on but why don't we hop to spain where a good result for caleb rhodes was a bad result for both atletico madrid and real madrid casemiro giveth and casemiro taketh away 1-1 the final score this was obviously, as you said, a very, very good result for Barcelona, a result that really opens up the La Liga title race in a way that a month ago seemed extremely unlikely. I am very concerned about this Atletico Madrid side. I don't know quite why they lost all of their mojo, but once again, this Madrid team, you look at it and you're like, they're going to score at most one goal a game at most one goal a game and Atletico just couldn't get to pass this team. And right now they are chasing a champions league tie and suddenly they're starting to feel a pressure in La Liga that they haven't felt all year. That is not the position that Simeone, I don't think wants to be in at all. Um, And I don't really know where this team goes from here because they pretty much have everyone fit and I think that the Simeone magic trick and maybe the Luis Suarez kind of spurt from the beginning of the season, although he did score in this game, um, isn't quite... Or maybe maybe I'll phrase it differently. Perhaps at Letty were never that amazing. They just looked amazing while like Barcelona and Madrid were floundering in the first you know half of the season. And now that at least Barcelona are in better form in the league, Atletico Madrid's kind of not transcendent quality, but sort of title challenger, but maybe not title winner status um, is showing a little bit more. I think there could be an element of truth to that, certainly as you know, the dip has begun this month. The troubling thing from a Simeone perspective is that I actually thought they played really well in the first like 60 minutes of this game. I thought the attack looked really good going forward. Suarez looked really good. Uh, I think the issue for them is once they get to the last like 30 minutes-ish of these kinds of tight games, they rest on their laurels. They go back to like the Simeone, like five at the back, six at the back sort of formation and try to grind these things out instead of, you know, title winners of the past who would put their foot on the gas and try and go for the kill, try and go for that second goal, try and see the game out. And I think they had opportunities to do this in the game uh, against Real Madrid. I don't know why João Felix didn't play in this game. I don't know why Angel Correa uh, started over him. I think Correa was truly terrible in this game. He didn't do a lot of the defensive work that was set out for him to do. And I think a huge issue is that Luis Suarez is not exactly who I would consider to be like a team defender. He's not like someone like Simeone Strikers of the past who is going to initiate that defensive structure from the front for their team. And so I think if you take that away, 
Simeone is trying to do his his thing with less parts than usual. So while I think getting Kieran Trippier back is really useful for them, and Mario Hermoso has been amazing for them this season, I think they are sort of in this 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 sort of limbo of not knowing you know whether or not to kill these games off or rest on their laurels, but I'm not sure they can rest on their laurels with the pieces that they have and grind up this title. Yeah, it's almost like no one really wants to establish their claim for, you know, La Liga champion elect just going off of how each team has sort of battled their own uh, dips and dives and form this year. But I also think that Casemiro has quietly emerged as like a top 10 player in the world all of a sudden. And maybe he's always just been a little underappreciated because of the dirty work and defensive work that he does. We know he's got a reputation for scoring bangers in big games in particular, but he hasn't had a rating below seven since October 30th. I said this in the last podcast. Without him, they're screwed, especially if they don't have Ramos in that back line. He is someone who is going to his like defensive fundamentals and his like awareness and reading of the game is probably the best they have at the back right now like including all of their defenders and the the way that he was able to split at Letty open for that goal was just such a clutch moment for this madrid team if madrid have any success this season it's going to be off the back of casemiro yeah and I, and I don't know if part of the reason that he's underrated as well is because he came over like three or four years later than I think a lot of brazilian wonder kids do and he obviously spent time in portugal as well and he also spent time in the b team Right. And so by the time he made his 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 emergence at Real Madrid, he was kind of like a 24 year old. And people were like, oh, you know, they had already signed. Um, they had just signed that. Who is the other Portuguese center defensive midfielder or Brazilian center defensive Argentinian. midfielder who didn't work out? Uh, Lucas something. Wait, you think of Fernando Gago? No, 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 not Fernando he, Gago. He, he also, he, they, they moved him on to Marseille. His name was like, yeah, Lucas something. Lucas, Lucas Silva Lucas or, Silva. or Lucas, Silva. Was, was is that actually Silva? his name? But they, but Madrid were kind of like churning through defensive midfielders at that time. Um, and they had obviously just lost uh, Chabi Alonso, you know, the year before. And since then he's really emerged, I think, and this year in particular in his age 29 year um, as kind of a, a world-class center midfielder. So it was Lucas Silva. It was Lucas Silva. Let's go. Who then went on loan at Marseille? Where Where does Lucas Silva play now? Botafogo. Cruzeiro. Okay, that was pretty close. That was pretty close. All on loan, though. I think he's still owned by Madrid, but he's been on loan for three years at Cruzeiro. We need to have an extended discussion about Madrid's transfers. It seems because these guys are still on loan. From like is Fabio Co- is like Fabio Coentrao has been on loan for like nine years. But but anyways, but anyways, I think the point still stands. There are a couple of really important games coming up. Of course, a Clasico is now just over a month away, and that could very well be a deciding moment. And of course, there are Champions League ties on the horizon for all three clubs. Uh, all of whom, except for Real Madrid, are facing uh, a deficit. And why don't we use that as a jumping off point to talking about a little bit about Barcelona, um, who won at the weekend 2-0, but that was kind of tangential to, I think, what we want to talk about. They had their club elections that had been postponed a couple of times due to COVID, and a familiar face is now back. Yes. So Joan Laporta, after, what, 10 years away now, is is back in charge he got just about i think 30,000 votes about half of all the barcelona 
members that could vote, about 50,000 people voted out of the 110,000 eligible voting members. I love how voting has just been like a big theme. This like this is the first time they did like voting by ballot, by mail and stuff. Uh, point being, Laporta's back. Laporta was the one who appointed Guardiola. Laporta was the one who oversaw arguably that sort of golden generation of Barcelona a little over a decade ago. Not a man without controversy. What was it? His cousin or something like that, who was the head of security at Barcelona. There was something there and that was like bad. I don't even remember. Point being, he's also a person that really mixes politics with soccer. Like he's a pretty outspoken Catalonian nationalist and and separatist. And so I think people um, are awaiting a, a return of sort of Barcelona nationalism um, in the coming years, which will be interesting as we see more uh, La Masia players all in all. But the big thing that Laporta's main sticking point when he was campaigning was that he was the one to keep Messi. He said, the first thing, the first thing I will do if I'm elected is call Jorge Messi to sort things out. And Jorge Messi liked his Instagram post where, where he said that. So uh, I presume that that call has been made at this point. We do not know the results of that call. You know, this is a bit of a nostalgia trip. I can trip. reveal now that I have the audio <laughs> from that phone call. <laughs> Exclusively on Corner Kick Media. No, yes, just yes. We are breaking the news. That would be wild. That would be insane. Dude, okay. Point being, I don't know what's going to happen, but he was pretty clearly going to win because he had the biggest name and sort of the history with the club. And now we can kind of move on with with the future and hopefully some things will will get settled in in the coming weeks yeah i think a return to form for barcelona is pretty good a a familiar established name coming back into the presidency should help them especially in this transitionary period what i would do if i was laporta you know maybe bring on someone like victor font who is a bit more of a progressive when it comes to soccer and when it comes to business and and maybe you know have him in his his posse his cabinet or whatever to try and implement a bit more a bit more progressiveness in into Barcelona. I think Laporta, the danger is like he just falls back on what made him successful in, you know, 2006, 2010, and like what eventually led to his departure from the club. You know, he's really, he obviously seems really passionate about bringing Barcelona back to, you know, what it was around 12 years ago. My concern is that, you know, this is the second go around. Uh, could there be a bit of a sophomore slump here? If Laporta does keep Messi, like what's the next step for him? You know, and then maybe having having some of those guys around like Victor Font, uh, you know, ex-players, stuff like that. Having those guys around him would be pretty useful in sort of steering the ship. And yeah, and you mentioned ex-players. And I think a, the name on a lot of people's lips is going to be Xavi, who's adding to his silverware collection. It seems like on the weekly. Um, and I can't say I can't make any sort of authoritative claim about the quality of the of the trophies or, or his team at Al Saad. But it certainly would seem like he will end up being the guy at some point. And whether that's at the end of this season or next, I don't think Komen is going to be the long-term guy. But that might not be true because Laporta is actually a huge fan of the Komen appointment. So I think if anything, this might, you know, if the season doesn't end in a total disaster, we might see another season of Komen with, you know, some of his transfers that he wants to make. I think we might see Memphis Depay come to Barcelona. I think we might see Jorginho Wijnaldum end up at, at Barcelona. So I think I think Komen has bought himself a little bit more time with Laporta coming in. Yeah, and frankly, so far Komen's like approach 
at least meshes with the short-term priorities of Barcelona, aka infusing youth, figuring out which of Coutinho and Dembélé's careers can be rehabilitated, trying to see if Griezmann fits at all, and generally just sort of bringing in youth players, um, which which help you know cut costs. And so I think all of that jives with what Barcelona need to do in the short term and what someone like Laporta who oversaw sort of the golden generation of the La Masia to first team transition um, might like, but, but we shall see. And I think it's pretty clear that in the next five years, I would say Xavi is going to become manager. I think it's interesting to think how that is affected by whether Messi stays or goes this year. I don't know what that is, but I agree with Nick that Komen might have at least another year in the tank, especially if we can eke out a Copa del Rey or even a La Liga title. I think it's one thing that's, that's also going to be interesting to watch is the development of, of Elias Mariba, who scored his first uh, senior professional goal. Maybe maybe this time Barcelona and La Masia will finally have their homegrown heir to the center midfield position after churning out, um, but a, a whole host of homegrown players who have sort of yet to develop to the level that I think a lot of people expected. So um, that'll certainly be interesting to watch. And we may as well use that to segue into the, perhaps the, the daunting task at hand for Komen at Co trying to battle back for another time um, against a PSG first leg lead. This match is going to be on Wednesday. I know the odds are stacked against them, but do we think that Barcelona have any chance at all of turning things around in the second leg? No. Caleb, over to you. <laughs> Thank you for that uh, astute analysis. I Listen, think you... I come to the show and I try and give you my best, my most honest, my most critical, my most thought-provoking. However, there's no, absolutely no chance that Barcelona overturned this deficit. <laughs> I understand that there is there is precedent for this happening. Um, PSG have been prone to collapse in second legs prior to this. However, I also just think that Maurizio Pochettino is a different coach to Unai Emery. I would say like a bit more structured and organized when it comes to these second legs. I think uh, in, his tenu- in his tenure at Spurs, the second leg, he was always battling back to try and come back into those ties. So this is a bit of a new situation for him where he has an established lead that he's trying to protect. I also think that th- the overall quality of the PSG squad is superior to that of Barcelona's right now. Even though Barcelona are in form, three plus goals away to PSG is just a little bit too much of an ask right now for Barcelona. Oh, yes, I agree. We will not be winning the tie. However, this could be like an entertaining 2-2 draw. That That is my goal. Honestly, if we got a 2-2 draw or like a 2-1 away win, we lose the tie. At least we save a little bit of face. But I, I hold no illusions that we're going to be leaving the Parc de France uh, as sort of total victors. Um, yeah, and I think it's sort of difficult when you give up four away goals. And we've, we've sort of talked about how there was a complete lack of pragmatism in that first leg that could have increased Barcelona's chances. Um, I also don't think that Barcelona can escape just because I think even with no Neymar, I don't think Neymar's not fit yet. Um, not to mention it's his sister's birthday. He's been training, but I, I'm not entirely sure that it's, it even makes sense for PSG to use him 
um, and risk him in this kind of tie when you have a guy like Mbappe who can just stretch a Barcelona team that will surely be looking to basically get on the front foot from minute one. Is Di Maria back yet? I don't think he's back yet. Either way, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure about that either. Because again, it seems like every time we try to analyze PSG's injuries, they have players that just like appear like Verratti yeah. last time. Oh my so God. I felt, I felt, I felt say, that podcast was such a disaster for us from a prediction standpoint that I feel like even hesitant to come on here and talk about the Champions League ever again. Obviously, we have to. I think yeah, we got I, we got like seven of eight wrong. I think that, that Verratti moment was so hilarious because I was so sure that he was injured, <laughs> and then starting eleven, Marco Verratti, and my head just went, in my hand just went straight to my head. I was like, oh no, what have I done? Yeah, but, but at the for, same you know, time, good for PSG yeah. for keeping their medical their <laughs> medical stuff, you know, secret and and away from like the tactical plans of whatever Barcelona wanted to do that day. Impressive. Um, at the same time as that Barcelona game, uh, an extremely, extremely out of form Liverpool side have a 2 0 lead that they will be defending against RB Leipzig, who are victors in four straight. This game, I think, has slightly more potential, I think, for a comeback, but I'm going to hold my breath just a little bit here um, because after I so thoroughly predicted that Leipzig would beat Liverpool in the first leg, I don't see any reason why they should be able to outscore. Liverpool by three, which is what they would need to do to go through. So, Nick, you've watched and not watched Liverpool as of late. Do you think this could be a kind of bounce back moment for the club? I think it's different because it's the Champions League. Liverpool are very comfortable in this competition, as we know. They have a two goal advantage in this game and they don't have to do anything particularly special in order to go through. Uh, They might have to score one if Leipzig get on the board, which I think is a possibility. This is technically a home tie for them. It's going to be back in Budapest. It sucks. You know, what Liverpool have been going through, it, it's truly terrible. And, and if you think about it, like, it's it sucked what Liverpool have gone through since, you know, 2019 or 2018, even if you want to say, like, they had a catastrophic Champions League final in 2018. They got back. They won it. by lo- And then they lost the Premier League by one point. And then they dominated the rest of 2019. They dominated early 2020, only to have the season stopped. And they couldn't celebrate winning the title in front of their fans. And then now they haven't had fans for over a year and their best player gets injured. Their captain gets injured. Uh, There's like familial tragedies involving their manager and their goalkeeper. And, you know, the season has just fallen apart all without the fans being able to go to the ground and lift them up. Like Liverpool, I think, tend to tend to always kind of feel like the bridesmaids, never the brides, at least for the past 15 years. And I think certainly like that has been the case in the past three years where Liverpool have just been surpassed once again by like a resurgent Pep Guardiola in Manchester City. And there's not really much that they can do about it. But that's Nick Given and the fans speaking. I guess from an objective standpoint, I do think Liverpool will get through here just because even though Liverpool have been so woeful recently, they haven't been, you know, getting crushed in games. They've been losing games 1-0 or at worst, you know, 3-1 to Leicester. I think the, the 4-1 to City was a bit of an anomaly. Uh, just because there were some errors in there. The good thing is Fabinho did play for part of the Fulham game in midfield, so that signals to me that Klopp is going to try and integrate integrate some of that more senior midfield back into the team, into their rightful positions. But yeah, as for you know the future of Liverpool in general, I'm a little bit more skeptical. Stat attack. <laughs> Do you know the last time Liverpool won both 
games of their round of 16. Yeah, in the Champions League. 2008-2009 against Los Blancos. Yeah, that was a great tie. But I do think that Liverpool will will go through. I think that in a lot of ways, like last time we expected Leipzig to just show up and roll them over in part because Liverpool were in such bad form. But I think there is something about not playing in the Premier League and playing in a different competition that just frees up the players to play better. And I think they will use this as a bit of a reprieve um, from the sort of slog that has been, you know, the league itself. Yeah, and Klopp rested a lot of players at the weekend to, I think, in anticipation for this tie, just have everyone healthy, have, you know, a fully fit squad going into the second leg. So hopefully things will be a bit different. I'm not expecting a win. I'm expecting a draw of some kind. But hopefully it is enough for Liverpool to make it into the quarterfinals where they will be comprehensively trounced by, you know, probably Bayern Munich and Manchester City. Exactly. I mean, you never know. UEFA works in mysterious ways. We may as well use this to time to, to wrap up by talking about a former Liverpool man. Steven Gerrard's Rangers are just a, a handful of games away from completing an invincible domestic season. They're still in with a shout in the Europa League. They're already through to the finals of the Scottish Domestic Cup, and they clinched uh, their first Premier League or Scottish Premier League title in a number of years this past weekend with just an outrageous record of 28 wins, four draws. 77 goals for and nine goals against and 24 clean sheets and 24 clean sheets. This team is maybe the best Scottish team um, this century. And uh, you have to think that it's doing wonders for Gerard's uh, resume and perhaps future hopes of coaching at a big club. Right. So I think, you know, the, the thing that people will throw at this league win is that it's just the Scottish Premiership and it's like just, you know, Rangers and Celtic and it's always a two horse race. But I think what people need to consider is that Rangers were a dumpster fire before Gerard took them over. Like they were facing liquidation. They had been demoted to the fourth tier of Scottish football and they had to work their way back over the early parts of the 2010s. They had like very little money to compile a competitive squad. And then Gerard took over in 2018 and he firmly built them back up from their foundations you know he had the training ground restructured he had stuff like the canteen the habits of the players i think he had a lot of input in squad selection his coaching staff is a bunch of very reliable people including former you know liverpool analytics guys and gary McAllister, former liverpool player and i think you can see that this team very much in the mold of Steven Gerrard as a player, gives everything they have on the pitch, both defensively and offensively. I think guys like Alfredo Morelos, who we knew were like very raw talents, Gerrard has has molded him into a bit less of a hothead and a bit more of a clinical finisher. Even more than you know their incredible record domestically this season, what Gerard has been able to do with Rangers in Europe over the past two years has been incredible. Like the Europa League is not an easy competition for Scottish team for Scottish teams who frequently don't have the depth to compete in those kinds of competitions. And Gerard is unbeaten in Europe this season. Uh, they have probably the goal of the season in Europe, that Kimar Roof goal from uh, you know way back in October, November, and they're through to a second round of the Europa League for the second time in two years. And they probably have a good chance of beating Slavia Prague and going to the quarterfinals, I would say. 
this has just been incredible. Like if you're if you are, you know, a legendary player, I think you have to look at the managerial track that Gerard is setting for himself right now. You know, learning your craft at maybe uh, somewhere where there's a lot where there's less pressure, but I think there certainly is pressure to deliver at at Rangers, especially preventing Celtic from from clinching that tenth title in a row. And he did that, and he's bringing a lot of joy to people who haven't seen joy in a decade now. Yeah, I think what's also kind of cool about this team is how balanced it is. You might think, given sort of how rampant the team has been in the Scottish Premier League, that they would have the top scorer. No, wrong. That would be Alton Edward of Celtic. Second is a Rangers player, James Taverdier, who's actually their left back, right back, sorry. Um, with 11 goals right back but four of the top 10 goal scorers in the league are rangers players but they all range between you know eight and 11 goals um you know across 32 games so it's not like this team is led by a single player who's just so much better than everyone else in the league that it's kind of impossible it's no this is actually like a team that is built off of chemistry and built off of sort of working together. And I think that's, you know, really impressive because a lot of times in sort of lesser European leagues like this, you tend to see the big team has the striker who is just a tier better than everyone else. And that just like isn't necessarily true with this team, which makes their achievements even sort of more impressive, I think. Yeah, and you have to think that there are a lot of players who make up this current Rangers team that might not be long for moves to, to bigger leagues. Guys like Alfredo Morelos have been linked to clubs like Lyon um, and also a host of Premier League clubs. Um, and even a guy like Tavernier, um, who's I think 24 now, is still you know approaching that age where he might be ready to make a move. <laughs> Tavernier is 29, 29, my dude. What? Yep. <laughs> oh, I thought he was 24 the entire time. Nope. I thought he was 24. Nope. Well, that makes me sad. I haven't been that wrong on a player's age in like three years. Uh, that's really not true. You think Maybe in like three that. weeks, <laughs> dude. Three yeah. weeks. <laughs> it's like every other episode at best. I, think I could have swore. No, but you're right. You're right, Nathan. I think there's a lot of... <laughs> Not on Tavernier's age, obviously, but I think you're you're right when it comes to that. There's a lot of players in this Rangers team who I think have futures abroad in, in better leagues in Europe, more competitive leagues. But I also think if these players choose to stay, it's going to be because of Steven Gerrard, right? Like, if I think Gerrard has cultivated enough of a nucleus at Rangers where it's like these guys are going to fight for him for the next couple of years until maybe 2024, which is when his contract runs out. And he maybe joins another club, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I, I'm just so impressed with what he's been able to do. It's crazy to see someone take their leadership capabilities from the field and translate it so directly into management. And obviously, like, Steven Jard is, is my favorite player of all time. I don't think that's really a shock to people. So I'm really pleased for him that it's going so well for him and that, you know, he is living up to the potential that I think a lot of Liverpool fans saw in him as a manager do you really think he's gonna stay until 2024 no i don't know like honestly it seems to me like he leaves this summer and could manage like a championship team or something like that that's kind of a lateral move though i think like i would 
maybe he takes over. I don't. I, I think he. I, I don't think he would take a lot. I think he would rather win championships for the next couple of years at Rangers than go to a championship side, especially seeing how the championship can be incredibly unpredictable and also kind of a minefield for young coaches. Um, like, I have a really hard time believing Frank Lamp. Like having seen Frank Lampard's path, for example, um, that that could be somewhat of a cautionary tale. I think it's interesting to compare those two, um, in particular, just because of their overlap in terms of playing career and positions and sort of their status in the all-time um, you know history books for England but anyways it'll certainly be something that is interesting and also it'll be curious to see if they can complete that domestic uh, campaign while being invincible and they are certainly a side that um, I think a lot of the big names left in the Europa League will not want to draw um, in the quarterfinals but that might as well do it for this episode of Corner Kick. We hope you've enjoyed a big couple of weeks of soccer coming up before the international break that may or may not end up actually being an international break as more and more uh, countries decide to pull out of Olympic and European qualifiers and whatnot. But we will have another episode for you at around the same time next week. But I have been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Ritz. I've been the big sad Nick Vinden. And we will see you all next time.